during the history of the world, there have been uh, just a handful of times where God acted, we might say, overtly acted and acted decisively in defeating evil. The book of Exodus describes one of those times God determined to set his people free from the slavery they were in, in the land of Egypt, and he calls and he sends Moses. And after what seems like almost a false start, where things actually got harder, got worse, uh, when Moses first confronts Pharaoh, uh, the Israelites then had to make brick without straw. They weren't provided with straw uh, after Moses first goes to Pharaoh, God then defeated the so-called gods of Egypt one at a time for every single plague that was sent. It was a judgment on those gods where they were conquered before the very eyes of the Egyptian. And after the tenth and final plague, Pharaoh uh, uh, finally let the people go and uh, they left, and Israel, I mean, Egypt was glad that they had gone, but then Pharaoh changed his mind, and he took his army, and he went after them. And he trapped them with the sea on one side of them, and Pharaoh's army on the other side. And, of course, you know how that story ended. God parted the waters, and his people were able to cross as if dry on dry land. And when Pharaoh and his army tried to continue the pursuit they're overwhelmed by the waters and drowned in the depths. It is a good and classic story where good overcomes evil. And then in the book of Kings, it records another such time when Elijah faced the prophets of Baal. The Israelites were wavering between serving the living God or serving what is really no God at all. And for three and a half years, there had been no rain on the, uh, on the land at the word of Elijah the prophet, and the times were absolutely desperate. Elijah had remained hidden from Ahab the king all this time, but now he confronts him and he says to him, Get the 450 prophets of Baal and meet me on Mount Carmel, and we'll have a contest there. They, the prophets of Baal, will build an altar and place their sacrifice on it, and they'll call on Baal, and I, I'll prepare the Lord's sacrifice, and I'll call on him, and the one whose God sends fire from the heaven, well, that will be the true God. And so it was done. And the prophets of Baal prepared their sacrifice. They laid it on the altar, on the wood, and they called on their God all morning and into the early afternoon. They cut themselves with knives. And Elijah began to taunt them. Call louder, he said. Maybe Baal can't hear you. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. And to no avail, all of their calls brought nothing and then at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord. He places the sacrifice on top of the wood. He digs a trench around the altar, and he has the sacrifice absolutely drenched with water until the trench around the altar is filled with water. And then Elijah called on God, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice the wood, 
the water in the trench, and even the stones. And the 450 prophets of Baal, the false prophets, were put to death. And again, it's the kind of story that Hollywood, in its better days, might have written. Good, triumphing over evil. And it speaks words of peace to our heart, for we know inside that God, good, should win out over evil. And the text that we're going to look at today is another one of those stories. It's a, it's a time when God, through his people, overtly acts in order to, be, to defeat evil. It hasn't happened yet, uh, but it will. It's in the future, but we have God's word on it. It's shown to us in prophecy so that we see it written in the broad brushstrokes of symbolism. We may not understand everything that's here yet, but we know enough when we read this, we'll know the outline of the story. It's not the final defeat of evil, but it's the first step of it. And soon after the story that we're going to look at today, the final act will come where evil is defeated forever and good reigns supreme. And God sets up his kingdom on earth. So I want to invite you to join me, if you would, again. And the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 11, we're really going to looking at verses 1 through 14. And, of course, we'll have it up on the screens on either side of me. Now, I have to tell you that this is one of the most difficult passages in the book of Revelation. So says all of the commentaries. And there's a lot of questions that can be raised here, for which maybe we're going to have to wait for answers until the end of time. But we can see uh, enough here to take courage and to face the things that might come our way because of what we learn here. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11 really set the scene for us. And, and in highly symbolic language, John tells us of a time in Jerusalem, a time yet to come, that yet resembles some other times in the history of that city. The chosen people of God are in some sort of distress where the world is oppressing them, but they themselves are not yet innocent. We begin reading in verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now that last line there is the easiest thing for us to understand. That text tells us that for three and a half years, that's what 42 months translates to, the world will have nothing but contempt for the Jewish people. And in some manner, they will be subjugating them. That is, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And yet, through that entire time, God protects them. Measuring in the Old Testament prophecy meant either that something was marked for destruction or that it was marked for protection. And, and maybe a case could be made for either here, but the overall result of what happens in this text turns out to be for the deliverance of God's people. And so he is protecting them here. Some of the other elements are less clear to us. I mean, some people think that at this time the temple has been rebuilt, and others think it, it merely symbolizes God's peoples. 
My thought is that some kind of temple or tabernacle is going to be there at the end. I know what maybe many of you wouldn't know because it's my job to try to know some of this stuff, right? There are people in Israel today who have already made all of the furnishings for the temple. They have all of the bowls. They have the altar it's made. They have the priestly garments are made. They're looking for a person to uh, serve as high priest. They're doing so by looking at the last name. Cohen would be an indication of someone who had been in the priesthood. And so all of those accoutrements are ready. And, and in our day and age, in our building technology, we could put up a building awfully quickly. But we could put up a tent overnight. So I think there's really going to be a temple. And in and, and any case, whether it's symbolic or there's an actual temple there, we know that God is going to protect his people at this time. Now that outer court is excluded from the measuring, I think, because Gentiles no longer come to God through Judaism. They come directly to Jesus Christ. And there's one more word of explanation before we move on here. You see, I said that Jews aren't innocent here. We understand that from a text where later on where the Jerusalem is referred to in derogatory terms. It's referred to as Sodom and as Egypt. And we also know it because of the fact that God sends his two witnesses to them. Which brings us to verse 3. And God's speaking here, he says, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, that 1,260 days equals 42 months, which equals three and a half years. And so the entire time that the Gentiles are trampling the city, these prophets are active. And they are prophets, make no mistake about it. And they are actually talked about in the Old Testament. Verse 4 says of them, They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. So there's these two witnesses, and they're described in that verse, and it's a reference to Zechariah. Now, there's an awful lot that you could look at in that text, and we're not going to turn there. But, but if you were to look at that passage, the one thing that you would most likely come away with is that these two witnesses find their power not of any human origin, not in any worldly origin, but from the Holy Spirit himself. All of their power comes from God. But just who are they? Well, you know, some people think that they're just symbols for, uh, uh, for other things, uh, like the law and the prophets, or the church and the word. And of course, we can apply them that way, and I think we should apply them that way. But this really becomes too complex. It becomes too confusing. And there's really no end of madness that would result if a symbol should be interpreted as a symbol, which then somehow we have to resolve into something else. You know, the simplest and most straightforward and sensible interpretation is that they are two people that God will use as he overtly acts to overcome evil. Now, some people think that they might be Enoch and Elijah, both of whom didn't die in the Old Testament. They were translated and taken into the presence of God. They never died, so maybe they're going to come back and they'll have their opportunity to die. And others think it might be Elijah and Moses because they were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And others like me say maybe, (laughs) 
but we really don't know. But we will know them when we see them, if we're here when they come. Which brings us to verse 5. And it tells us that just as God protects the Jewish people at this time, so he protects his two witnesses. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. So God is going to protect them from those who want to kill them. Now, now I have to tell you something. I, I really don't think, but I'm willing to be corrected, and I acknowledge that I could be wrong, but I really don't think that literal fire comes from their mouths. I think this is picture language to describe the power of their speech. Just as Jesus said to the disciples that when you get arrested and you're brought between, before judges and magistrates and kings and governors, don't worry about what you're going to say, because when you speak, it'll be the Holy Spirit speaking through you. And who in the world would ever be able to refute him but one thing's clear from that passage God will protect them from those who want to harm them and there are many who want to kill them verse 6 tells us a little bit more about why they're so hated you see not only are they speaking the word of God to people they're confronting people in their wickedness but verse 6 they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying, just like Elijah did. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague, like Moses did, as often as they want. And they can do it over and over again, which even Moses didn't do. And you see, if the people of the world right then weren't angry enough at hearing God's word, they were certainly angry because of the things that these two were doing. And I wish you didn't notice what the text there says. It says they strike the earth, which seems to indicate that their power extends well beyond the borders of uh, Jerusalem or Israel. And in fact, that's really confirmed later on in the text. And all of this goes on for three and a half years. They're witnessing, they're testifying, they're confronting evil where they find it. And then we come to verse 7. Now when they finished their testimony, that is, when they had done everything that God had assigned them to do. I'm going to stop there for a moment. Um, uh, I became a believer. Um, I was 25 years old. I was working a part-time job, midnight shift, in the back of a 7-Eleven store. And the man who led me to Christ would come in there and share the gospel with me. And one night at 2 o'clock in the morning, I bowed my knees in the back of that store, and I asked Christ into my heart. And, uh, and I ended up leaving that job. And a couple months later, George, the man who led me to Christ, and I were riding uh, in his car. And I looked over, and the 7-Eleven was closed. And I said, George... They closed the 7-Eleven, and his response to me was, well, God was finished with it. And God is like that. He is so intimately involved in our lives, and he was intimately involved or will be intimately involved with these people, and they have a task to do. And, and they are immortal. They are invincible until that task is completed. But after they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss 
And this is the first mention of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. That beast will attack them and overpower them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in a public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Referring, of course, to Jerusalem. And that's how we know that the Jews were not innocent in all this. And, and it seems as though these, these two people who were doing the will of God had lost the battle. And the world is glad for it. Verses 9 and 10 says, For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of all the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. That's everywhere, my friends. Their ministry, their, their um, acts extended over the whole earth. So whatever those witnesses did in Jerusalem, it was affected everywhere. And now they're dead, and the world rejoices. In verse 9, the NIV reads, Some from every people, language, and nation. That's the way they translate that. But you want to know, in the Greek, it simply doesn't have that word, some. It says people from every tribe and language and nation will gaze on their bodies. And, 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 and that makes sense to us today, right? It makes sense that all people all over the world could see those bodies lying in the streets. I can imagine a live feed TV broadcast taking that picture to the four corners of the earth. I can imagine the news anchors repeating the story over and over and over again how the beast have defeated those two false prophets with that ever so slightly suppressed grin on their face and the way they report any news that has some bad news for Christians. See, in the hearts of the world, Christmas can't even begin to compare with the death of these two. A new holiday is born here, and uh, many people will take off work uh, so they can enjoy the festival and people will send each other gifts. It's, It's a time where the cause of Christ and the victory of good and evil seems to be in doubt as it had never been before except one other time. The story, however, is not over. Rejoice as the world will, it is not over yet. And verses 11 and 12 tell us what will happen next. But after the three and a half days, the breath of the life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw it. Watching their TVs or standing there in the city, suddenly they see their enemies stand up. Suddenly all their rejoicing ends. Abruptly it ends, and terror takes its place. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, that is the two witnesses, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. The world is stunned, and we can imagine the silence that must fall on all of the earth at the sight of their enemies' vindication and being taken up into heaven. 
But I can tell you that God's not quite finished with this story yet. There's one more chapter that he's going to write, and it's revealed to us in, in verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. That final act of judgment in this episode brings death to numerous people and terror to all, but it also brings repentance of the Jewish people. They gave glory to God. That's another way of saying they were saved. They have finally put their faith in the right place. And that's really what that's all been about right from the beginning. Sin is judged so that people will turn from it. And the two witnesses took no joy in the things that they had to do to get their message out. That's why they were clothed in sackcloth. That means they were mourning. Just as God takes no joy in the death of the wicked, but only in their repentance. The story... Even now, it's not over yet. Verse 14 tells us there's one more trumpet to come, one more blast that will follow, but the end is in sight. This episode that we just looked at is on the doorstep of the end. It's the first step of those end times where we see God act overtly in order to defeat evil, and yet there's more to follow. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see just what that is. In the meantime, there are really a couple of things that we need to talk about before we can bring this uh, time together to a close. You see, when, when those two witnesses lie dead in the street, it will seem as though the cause of Christ has come to nil. And the triumph of good over evil and God over evil will finally have come to an end. It's doubtful that it really has ever been a time that would be so dark as that time will be, except one. When Christ hung on that cross, betrayed by one of his own, deserted and denied by others, his own people delivering him over to death, when he cried out and died, and when he was placed in that tomb and that stone was rolled in front of it, and the world had written him off, there was never a darker time than that. But by his death, he conquered sin and made a way for his people to follow him. His resurrection is God's assurance to us that evil will not win. God and good will. And no matter what the world throws at us, we will triumph. That was the greatest act. Overt act of God in defeating evil in the history of our world. And it is also the lesson that this passage teaches. The other thing we need to understand is that God doesn't often act so overtly and decisively against evil. As in all wars, there are a few great battles, and there are countless smaller ones and skirmishes here and there where sacrifices are made, and although they may be heroic, 
they're barely noticed at the time while that war moves on to the time of final victory. Now, without those smaller things and those unsung sacrifices, no real win would ever be possible. So it is with us. For the last three or maybe four years now, I I have been talking about our need to be prepared for persecution, not because I wanted to talk about it, not even because I intended to talk about it, because I believe God has led me to that every time I've come to a passage like this over and over again. Sometimes I feel like I've had to say it too many times, but the truth is persecution has come. Franklin Graham said, get ready, it's coming, it will come. And I think it's already here. I want to give you a little update. I mentioned those bakers in Oregon, and they refused to do a cake for a homosexual couple. They had baked for them in the past, but they would not violate their conscience, and they refused to do it. Oregon has prosecuted them, and their business is closed, and they've been fined $135,000, and they will likely lose their home. And now, the state, in an outrageous act of arrogance, has ordered them not to speak any further about this or they will be fined or put in jail. That's the United States of America. The Supreme Court has said gay marriage is the law of the land and there are hundreds of clerks across our nation. I don't know if you know this because it's not reported on the news who are Christians, and some have resigned and left their jobs, and others have said, I will not violate my conscience. I will not issue that certificate. And they're being sued, and some of them face a year in prison. Again, it's our country, the United States of America. The question for you is, are you ready? You know, we have to be prepared to fight the good fight. We must be ready to make whatever sacrifice is required of us. We must be prepared for those times when all seems dark, when evil looks like it's winning, when the cause of Christ seems in doubt, when the world is rejoicing and our hearts are clothed in sackcloth. At those times... It's our faith that will see us through. It's at those times that we will take heart from passages like this as Christians have down through the ages. And it's at times like this when we will cling to the cross of Christ, knowing that God will never let us go, that there is a better day coming, a great day, a homecoming day where evil has no place where there are no more goodbyes and everything just gets better and better forever and ever and we will say then that it has been worth it all and to God be the glory.
And in the meantime, we will stand. And when we have done everything we can do, we will stand. Until they bury us, or Christ comes to get us, we will stand. Would you pray with me, please? You made the way before us, Lord Jesus. You walk that path of suffering. And you've said to us, if we would follow you, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and come. Not one of us knows what that will mean to us. We didn't even know what it meant when we first came to you. But you knew. And we trust you. And by your grace, we will continue to do so whatever the world might throw at us. Not because we're anything at all, but because you are everything. And you've loved us. Come to our aid. May we know both your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand and worship one more time.